How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're talking about sustainable consumption and greenwashing. The number of consumer products that claim to be eco-friendly is soaring, and there are more than 400 labels designed to inform or mislead people as they stroll down store aisles or browse online. Companies are providing more information about what is in their products and where and how they are made. That information can be helpful. It can also be overwhelming and confusing. With our audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we'll talk in the next hour about how individuals can avoid green fatigue and make informed choices that are good for them and the planet. We'll also discuss what companies are doing to clean up their products and inform consumers what they are doing. We're pleased to be joined by three guests deeply involved in the world of sustainable consumption. William Brent is Executive Vice President of Energy, Clean Tech, and Sustainability at Weber Shandwick, a public relations firm. Aaron Kramer is President and CEO of Business for Social Responsibility, a consulting firm. And Dara O'Rourke is co-founder of The Good Guide and Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at UC Berkeley. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, Dara O'Rourke, in 2007, the number of products that claimed to have some kind of green attribute increased sharply. So tell us, set the, the large trend here about the rise in green claims among consumer products. Well, um, to start with some good news, I think there is a growing demand among consumers to find products that are healthier, greener, safer, non-toxic, better for their health, their community, their environment, and the planet. And so we've seen growing awareness among consumers, uh, largely, unfortunately, driven by scandal after scandal after scandal and expose after expose. And anyone who reads the newspaper sees this week was the warmest year on record we saw in the New York Times. We have the most unhealthy population of men in the advanced industrial world. We're seeing over and over again, we've got major environmental crises, major health crises, major social issues around the world that has raised the awareness of consumers to want to find safer, healthier, greener, products that they can feel good about consuming. So that's the good news. So there's a growing demand among consumers. And as you mentioned, in 2006, 7, 8, we saw the market respond with a really rapid growth in the number of products claiming to be natural or environmentally friendly or sustainable, usually very vague, broad terms about their uh, general environmental performance. Uh, so the market is responding, and again, before we get into the bad news of greenwash and all the problems, we see across sectors the fastest-growing market for cars is in hybrid and energy-efficient cars. The fastest-growing sector part of food is organic food. The fastest-growing sector of cleaning is natural, non-toxic cleaners. So across categories, we really are seeing good growth in better, healthier, safer products, but from very small starting points growing quite well. And so you're saying there was consumer demand or pull that was doing that. Uh, Aaron Kramer, you're consulting with lots of companies. Is it really that demand pull that's, that's moving the market? What are the, why are the companies that you're working with do, doing more green products? Well, well, there certainly is some uh, increase in, in the demand, as Dara has said. And, and 
That's the good news, of course. The flip side is exactly what Dara said, is that it's starting from a very small base. Um, you know, big companies in particular are um, absolutely thinking about this, but they're thinking about it with a degree of skepticism when it comes to what consumers do. I think there's a lot of polling data out there, out there that suggests that uh, consumers will uh, buy something that's made under good working with good working conditions uh, that is organic and at the ballot box of the cash register behavior tends to be a little bit different but companies don't ignore that so I, I think um, I think the way we frame things is really really important and uh, we'll talk about labels today people talk a lot about green I actually think green as a word is a bit of a dangerous word I think it's got a lot of baggage associated with it if we start from a point of uh, communi- communicating to consumers that green is good, I actually think companies succeed best when they communicate a message along the lines that good is green. And that uh, take a company like Nike, which has been busy taking toxics out of its products for the last now 10 or 15 years, they view this as an improvement in the quality of its product. And I think if we can get to a place where um, all of the, the attributes that Dara described are considered to be one dimension of quality and a dimension of better. That's when the marketplace is really going to accelerate. William Brent, you advise companies on how to communicate. What do you tell them about how to communicate their green products in this increasingly cluttered and uh, uh, marketplace? Uh, I think uh, increasingly, so when, when all of this started, and I th- a lot of people sort of divide uh, the time of sustainable products, green products, between uh, with BW and AW, before Walmart and after Walmart. Whether that's a, a, a legitimate uh, division, I don't know. But Walmart basically made a big push starting in 2007, uh, around that time, to, to clean up its supply chain. Um, um, prior to 2007, I think a lot of people were marketing uh, green products on single attributes, right? So it was more uh, recyclable, more better compostability, whatever it might be. Uh, less energy used in, in the production of it. And, and then that, I think that, that quickly uh, uh, became clear that that, that was not going to be sufficient and that uh, there had to be a more a holistic view. And so people looked at life cycle uh, analysis, but that didn't really work well either. It was uh, hard to find a common framework, hard to communicate it in a way that made sense. And I think where we are today from a, a sort of advising companies on, on sustainability and how they communicated it is to really think about it from a, from a business perspective. Um, and really, uh, you know, taking it up to the level where it's, it's part of the operations of the business, integrated throughout the business, transparent throughout the business. Um, and uh, only when, when you have that and when you are able to achieve that as a business does it make sense to talk about the, the benefits of the products that you're producing. But just to do it on its own uh, is insufficient today. But a lot of companies, would you agree, are doing that, trying to, they're not sort of, uh, they're kind of just going through the motions. Uh, you know, there's a lot of these uh, single attribute claims still out there. Uh, so, well, that, that might be the goal to say that it, you know, good business is green business, and if we do it, if we do it right, we'll actually save money, enhance shareholder value. Um, but let's talk a little bit about some of the, some of the, the claims that are out there, and, and, you know, I guess, how do you recognize greenwashing when you, when you see it? I'd like to tackle that one, Dara. Yeah, so that was actually the impetus for us starting this project, goodguide.com, which basically was an attempt to help consumers see through the marketing claims, the single attributes, or the actual greenwash, the misleading claims, the claims that talk about 
our company planted trees here when their real impacts are over here. Talk about we, this is a green water bottle when what they're talking about is they made the lid 25% smaller. Oh, that's one of my favorite. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we Arrowhead, saw Arrowhead, by the way. Um, okay. Yeah. And feeds you water. We saw yeah. you know a hybrid Lexus that was had worse gas mileage than the normal Lexus. We saw this whole range of things that were really I think misleading and deceptive. And so we basically see um, I think as William was pointing out, you need to help the public and companies identify what are the key impacts of their product and their supply chain. What really matters? So I don't really care if an oil company has a really nice office recycling program, right, or they plant some trees. I want to know what's the impact of their extraction, distribution, burning of oil, or a mining company, or a T-shirt company, whatever. You've got to help people find what are the main impacts, the hot spots in the supply chain, and what are they doing on those issues? And can we show people how different T-shirt companies compare, how different uh, cell phone companies, how different shampoo companies help them identify the real impacts through life cycle assessment, health hazard assessment, chemical risk assessment. You need to have real science to do this to compare whether it's their carbon or water or toxics and then really give companies and the public a better way to evaluate down their whole supply chain relative performance along these key material impacts. So just to clarify, you would, when someone's looking at a company claim, you would ask, advise them to say, is this claim related to their core business and their core impact? Exactly. Or is this a sort of a diversion to the side of, of what they're really doing? Aaron yeah. Kramer, you want to? Yeah, so there are a couple of competing um, issues here. One is that for consumers, simplicity is really important. You know, Darrell will know better than I, but I think the average person in a supermarket spends milliseconds choosing one product or another, and a lot of it is by habit. So if it's not really simple and easy, it's not going to resonate. But all of the attributes that we're talking about are actually pretty complex, and figuring out whether a T-shirt is sustainable or not is not that simple, actually. And it, and it has a lot to do with how a consumer actually washes the shirt um, rather, and, rather than how the shirt was made, where the cotton comes from. So... So companies struggle with this. They know that they've got to translate uh, science and a lot of uh, and, a, and an extended value chain and a, and a lot of complicated assessments, and then translate that into something that's really simple for consumers and not misleading. And so getting all of that right is is complex, and 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 that's where I think the word green is problematic. I th- I think it's much better to talk about something that is greener, perhaps. Uh, because we're not yet at a place where we can say that many products are actually uh, truly sustainable. One may be more sustainable than another. doesn't make it sustainable. Well, not only that, I mean, I wonder, and I think there's data out there to, to indicate this, you know, if consumers even really care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's uh, data that says, you know, uh, only 25% of consumers uh, use labeling or certification as a, as a key indicator when making a purchase. You know, it's still a very small number. Uh, when you look at the, the overall market, um, and so you know, the, the the question to me is, you know, is is is, is this a consumer issue uh, or is it a business issue? And I, and I think that there's a um, a fundamental uh, uh, question there in terms of where's the the major change going to be coming from? Is it going to be coming from business and business management, business structure, supply chain? Um, you know, the creation of, a, of your business as a B Corp or whatever it might be, or is it going to actually be on the consumption side where consumers are, can and are willing to make a, make a big difference? Um, you know, is, is that even possible? Well, so, yeah, I would say it has to be both. That, that first of all, consumer spending is 70% of U.S. GDP, drives 70% of the U.S. GDP. So you've got to take on consumers. You've got to engage consumers. 
and, and, and take on this gap between what they say they want. 75% of Americans say they want to buy green, and 1% to 3% actually do. So we've got to cross that chasm. People want to buy healthy. They want to buy products that match their ethics. They want to buy products that are good for their family. So how do we help them do that? But I think you're absolutely right. The, the main action right now is actually B2B. It's businesses demanding of their vendors, their suppliers, their supply chain for a number of reasons. It may be corporate policy. It may be that their customers are demanding it. The federal government is demanding it. So we've got to have a strategy because the, the problems are so grave. Climate change, biodiversity loss, health issues are so big. We've got to come at it from both angles, I think, and be pushing how do we create consumers as a point of leverage over brand-sensitive, reputation-sensitive companies, and how do we go to retailers, institutional purchasers, the big drivers of purchasing, and also build tools for them. Dara Rourke is co-founder of The Good Guide and a professor at UC Berkeley. We're also talking today with Aaron Kramer from Business for Social Responsibility and William Brent from Weber Shandwick. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to read a quote from uh, about this, about what consumers want. Uh, this is a quote from Riff, uh, Rita Clifton, who's chair of Interbrand, an agency, a branding agency. I'm sick of hearing that consumers want more information. They don't. They want knowledge of what a brand stands for and what extent it can be trusted to make those complicated decisions on their behalf. And what she seems to be saying is we want this to be easy. We want to do good things but not work too hard for it. Aaron Kramer? Well, I, I mean, I think that's true. And I also think that um, the world has changed. And uh, we have access to infinitely more information than ever before. People are very adept at finding the information that's most important to them. And... Uh, and that leads, that's led to an information-rich but fragmented world. Now, I think that's actually positive because it means that if I'm interested in labor conditions or if I'm interested in water use or I'm interested in toxics, I can choose what information and, and I can go get it. And so it does all roll up to the brand. Rita Clifton is right. But a lot of us define the brand very differently in an, on an individual basis, and that's the world we have. And it's only going to get it's only going to deepen. And it gets hard to uh, prioritize values. Uh, Dara O'Rourke, I went to the Good Guide and, and started the process, and it basically asked people to say, "Do you care more about animal rights or human rights, or do you care more about?" And I went, "I care about them all." Yeah. But then, but then obviously you have to prioritize them. So is it is it my environment or the environment? And that gets pretty tough and brings up some conflict where yep. people might throw up their arms and say, ah, this is too hard. I'm just going to buy whatever. I'm That's right. And I think uh, I would agree with Aaron that, that there are people who want just a simple answer. And you can go to Good Guide and just take the default. Our scientists have determined this is the best algorithm for you. But you can also then personalize for the people who want to. We've found over the last five years that there are more and more consumers do want focused, tailored information. Just take a couple things. Five years ago, it was me and a couple other nerds debating bisphenol A and phthalates and parabens. Now that's mainstream dinner conversation. Is there bisphenol A in my baby bottle? Are they taking it out of my Nalgene bottle? People are talking about specific chemical ingredients, about specific toxics, about climate change, about e-waste, things that were really for academics and technical conversations are now... Some percentage of consumers want to know this product does not contain bisphenol A or does not contain this specific chemical. So we see at GoodGuide, we've had 20 million consumers use GoodGuide, that some want to go just on a simple answer, yes, no, should I buy it or not? And others want to drill down to an ingredient. I want to avoid this ingredient. I want to avoid this labor practice. I want them to not test on animals. And so I think you've got to meet both. And the ideal situation is Google-like. You get a quick answer, but you're one click away from deeper information if you want it. 
I would disagree with Ms. Clifton, quite frankly. I don't think brands get to control the message anymore. I don't think they get to tell us what to believe or not to believe. I think more people want to know, more people can know, more people get information from Facebook, from Twitter, from Pinterest, from their friends, from curated information from NGOs they trust, whoever. They aren't going to trust her brands. They're not going to trust her as a consultant to brands. They're going to want to get it from people they trust. Corporations, uh, Aaron saw this, uh, it was the Edelman <coughs> Reputation Survey, corporate America has the lowest trust level in any year they've tested. It's NGOs, it's academics, it's other groups that people trust. And so I don't think people are going to go to brands anymore to hear the full story of their products and their supply chains. And you have an example of, was it McDonald's? They, they tried to put out a message, they were social media, they got caught, and it, it flipped on its head. Well, we see, yeah, we see that. It really, this last year has been a phenomenal learning experience, I think, for everyone. Um, in Twitter speak, we call these hashtags. And McDonald's created a hashtag, which was, you know, my first McDonald's experience was a hashtag. And it turned into what the activists now call bash tags. People used their hashtag and turned it against them to say, my first experience was seeing a rat scurry through the McDonald's. My first experience was getting sick from how disgusting the food was, whatever, whatever. And this thing went viral. We saw that happen you know, with Bank of America on prices. We saw that happen to Susan G. Komen this year. We saw it happen over and over and over again. Things in 24 hours can turn against a corporate message, a corporate attempt to control the dialogue where I, I think the age of brands controlling the message and telling us what to believe about them is coming to an end. William Brent? Oh, I, I, absolutely, it's true. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the nature of my business has, has shifted dramatically over the past uh, five, seven years. I mean, um, we used to be a one-to-many uh, uh, culture of communications, right? Uh, you have a message dis- disseminated from the powers that be in corporate America. It would then disseminate down through traditional media, and people either read it, they didn't read it, they believed it if they did it, or they didn't believe it. And, and today's world is extremely different. Um, and, you know, uh, corporations, I think, are, are certainly uh, understanding that and moving very quickly, some of them, to embrace uh, these new avenues for not only um, engaging with their consumers and trying to learn, but also trying to learn from their consumers. I mean, the ability to crowdsource um, suggestions to make your business, to make your product better are, are out there today. And I think brands uh, are, are very aware of that and understand that they need to tap into that if they're going to be relevant um, and continue to sell their products going forward. Aaron Kramer, you agree? I, I thoroughly agree, and I, I think we live in you know, the mesh that's been used in, in terms of describing consumption patterns, which are also changing, but it, it's a network world that, that we live in. And, and again, this speaks to fragmentation. It speaks to the fact that there are a lot of different attributes that people want to see in products. And, uh, you know, to use the phrase that's used so widely, you've got to be part of the dialogue, but it is absolutely not a one-way channel. And one of the hard things here is for people to think about trade-offs. Well, I, there's performance of a product, and there's also some some values I have. Maybe there's some hierarchy that I've defined. Maybe not, but I want something that works and that, that doesn't hurt the, the world and doesn't cost a lot. So that's a pretty tall order. But that's, or, that's this goes back to something Aaron said earlier. Those are the products that are succeeding. This is... If you can have a product that's a high-quality product that people like you like, that your friends have tried and they like it and it works and it tastes good and it smells nice, whatever, so you've got kind of a social peer recommendation, it's in your price point or within 10% of your price point, and it's sustainable, it's healthy, it's green, those are the products that do really great. So that's, you know, the Toyota Prius example where it's a great car from a great company that does well and it's 
better on fuel efficiency. But it, you see that Patagonia products, where you see that these ones that do really well, but they've got to be high-quality products at a good price and sustainable. But wouldn't you also say that it has to be more than just about the products? I mean, because you, you think about it, uh, people buy brands, um, and you know their products are underneath those brands. Yep. But they're, they're 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 buying on brand reputation and corporate reputation. So I'm wondering, you know, is it more important than, uh, therefore, for peop- for the brand uh, to be able to show overall, you know, a, st- a step away from the specific attribu- attributes and, you know, the the, the good things of, of of a specific product, but if they've created an overall halo uh, for their company based on behavior from the throughout the supply chain and everything that they do. Um, isn't that what's really the most important? Not the fact that, you know, and, and so then the, the, the specific average attributes of products become less important, right? Because I know that if I'm buying a Toyota product, you know, they're lean, you know, uh, in their supply chain. And so, well, what well, we found, so we rate about a dozen product categories through goodguide.com, and, and there are categories where people basically make decisions on brands. So I'd say footwear, you're kind of thinking, do I like Nike better than Reebok? And you're not really going down to the level of the Nike Air Pegasus 3, whatever, whatever. But in shampoo, baby shampoo, people are going, I want to know that this specific bottle does not have this specific chemical that could have this impact on my daughter. They're thinking at the product level. And in automobiles, you know, Toyota has gotten this great halo from the Prius, but they're doing more Tundras and more huge SUVs. And their overall corporate performance is pretty middling. So they have gotten a little bit of a kind of a PR halo effect from this one product line, which is doing very well, but is not their full story. I, I mean, this is something I think these big, very complex corporations have a tough time being really consistent in their overall kind of portfolio. Eric well, they, yeah, they do in part because um, I think we're talking about still a very small segment of American consumers so far so far today, and for most people. They want to get the most product at the lowest price. Simple as that. You know, we had a conversation with uh, a, a restaurant company and suggested that um, they look at freshening the menu in order to put out more healthful products, maybe smaller portion size. We've got an obesity epidemic in this country. And, and their response was, you know, those are your values. Our consumers have different values. And, you know, I didn't agree with that, but I think the fact remains that for a lot of people, I want to get the most calories I can for my family at the lowest possible price. And if it tastes good, that's really important. Where does it come from? Is it organic? All of those things. That still doesn't add up for enough people. So I think the elephant in the room in all of this actually is not only the nature of each product, but the overall volume of products because we've got uh, an economy that's actually predicated on massive levels of consumption um, so that you know, we can have niche products over here and a completely unsustainable economy overall. And, and companies, um, because of the way markets work, continue to need to, to drive volume and so on. So I think that's a big part of the equation, um, and that's why stimulating demand through the good guide and, and other steps is so important, because until there is the market demand for sustainable products, greener products, whatever you call it. I think we're stuck in a volume economy, which is inherently unsustainable. 
So we're just talking about a small percentage of companies and a small percentage of consumers who are even having this conversation. Most of companies and consumers are not on the same page. Most companies, but about a small percentage of products, I would say. I think every company is in this conversation right now, but it's not yet the dominant model for most businesses. So they'll have one product line that, that's sort of their green line, but most of what is Prius, well, Toyota sells one Prius, and they sell a lot of trucks and other things, but it's that Prius that people talk about, Darrow. Yeah, so this is one where, you, you know, well, you mentioned only 25% of Americans. Look at these things, and Aaron, you just mentioned kind of small percentages, but, you know, all major transitions and transformations start off from a very small group of early adopters that, in tech, it's in Silicon Valley, but in these issues, you know, we saw that fair trade coffee started basically with churches on Sundays switching to fair trade coffee and that growing and switching a market. It's only about 5% of the market, but it has moved that into the mainstream. Organic started from little health food stores. It was tiny, and now it's a major force. Sweat-free clothing, it was basically college campuses. A few colleges tried to get their campuses to switch. So we got to start from small base, and we are at a small base, but I think we don't need to get to 50%. I mean, I think if you told any brand, William, you could help them get to 25% of the market, you know, brand manager fighting over 10 basis points every quarter. You tell them, I got you 15% of the market. Now, P&G might scoff at it, but any other brand manager in America is going to say, that's unbelievable. If I can access 15% of the market and get my products and convince them, that's a huge opportunity, and that's enough, I think, to shift to begin to shift the economy, not totally, but we see organic is probably the most successful beginning to shift what agriculture looks like globally. And so that's where we get into the conversation about, yeah, companies as, as uh, agents of change. The, uh, but some companies can, can overreach. We talked about talking about brands here. Uh, Dar O'Rourke Whole Foods uh, has a, one of those pretty clean brand reputations, yet their own CEO acknowledged they were selling a lot of crap. Mm. And there were, there were parabens and phthalates and things, uh, ke- toxic chemicals and stuff that they were selling. So the, what they were selling did not correspond with their green brand. Yeah, Whole Foods is probably the most successful case of a retailer who convinced the world that just walking into their store, everything inside it would be sustainable. And the and fact you are that, a good person for doing it. Right, and, and it's worth your whole paycheck to shop at Whole Foods <laughs> and to get the stuff. It turned out, as John Mackey pointed out, there's a lot of stuff on their shelves that was not very good stuff. He actually, he called it crap. He said 50% of the stuff on our shelves is crap. It's soda and it's crap and it's stuff even in our 360 brand that we own. And so I think... You know, that's an example where the overall goal was to build this feeling. And they've done phenomenally well. You know, they've gone from a tiny chain based in Texas to national and billions of dollars in revenue. So, again, I think it's a great sign that companies like Whole Foods are taking a look at what they're doing and they're saying, we're going to continue to improve and we're not going to live on this halo. We're going to actually clean up our act. You see it also, Patagonia, I think a great example that – went forward on transparency. They launched something called the Footprint Chronicles a few years ago that began a process of them admitting both the good, the bad, and the ugly of their products. And that's pretty dangerous for a green brand, a kind of environmental clothing brand, to say, look, we put these toxic chemicals that are durable water repellents that are on the jacket. Now, the jacket is recycled polyester, but we have to. that's good. The bad news is we put a toxic chemical on top to make it water repellent. But that actually got them more credibility. It got them a better 
conversation with their customers, built their brand by admitting their weaknesses and talking about what they're going to do to fix it, which they haven't fixed it yet. But I think that's the future of this, really is honest, open, transparency into the full supply chain, the good, the bad, the ugly, and then an honest two-way conversation with your stakeholders about what you're doing to improve. Uh, you know, Aaron Kramer, this is a new thing to sort of engage consumers in this way in corporate America where they have these hierarchies, as William mentioned earlier, and they make decisions. But to actually involve consumers and to share things that might not be always favorable, that's culturally inside organizations. That's really tough. It's one of the most counterintuitive things for business to do. You know, no one... No company, no CEO stands up in the morning and says, we're number three, or we're not doing very well, but we're going to get better. But in fact, you now have something like 80% of the S&P 500 producing sustainability reports. They're variable quality, but the norm has become a degree of transparency. Now, taking that to the behavioral level with consumers is really challenging. You know, I was talking with someone at, at Unilever last month, and they know that for a lot of their products, uh, the, the consumer's use is, is the biggest part of the footprint. So let's talk about shampoo a little bit. Well, all of a sudden Unilever's saying, how do we engage in a dialogue with our consumers about how long their showers are? Because that is actually going to make a bigger difference in terms of our product's impact on the world than anything else. And they're really scratching their heads saying, gee, we didn't get into this to you know, start making ads about length of showers. That would be a departure for us. Um, um, we can't go door to door and encourage people to change their showering habits. Um, so th- it, these are really interesting questions that ultimately do come down not only to purchasing practices, but also consumer behavior. I happen to believe that's one of the areas, though, that has the most potential because we waste a third of the food that we buy. We waste a third of the energy that's generated. We waste a comparable amount of water in this country and that's throwing money away. So that's where companies and consumers actually have something in common, that they a problem they can solve together. And let's talk about that uh, consumer behavior, because some people, Adara Rourke, would say that the good guide is a disservice, that it leads people to believe that we can shop our way to the solution, mm-hmm. that, by, that sustainable consumption in itself is an oxymoron. We're not going to solve this by buying you know, greener products. So take, take that on. Who said that? that, that? Yeah, I read it. I read <laughs> it on the internet, so I know some guy said that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some comment on a tweet or something. Yeah. Um, Why don't you so, look at me? I didn't say that. No, <laughs> definitely, Aaron would never say that. Um, so um, it is. Uh, I think really we are at the very starting point of getting to the kind of transparency and provision of information and provision of not data but useful information that can be turned into action and that can actually influence behaviors that is where we want to go. And so Good Guide is basically the starting points. We are an early example of where the market is going. And this is the market is going towards radical transparency. It will not be possible to hide behind brand marketing in the future. There will be sites like ours that will be basically providing information to the public on your products, your company, your supply chain, what you're doing in these different issues. The thing that we've learned over the last couple of years, though, is providing scientific information alone. And this, this hurts me as both an academic and as you know, the, a practitioner, providing information to the public about how screwed we are on climate change or how screwed we are on biodiversity loss has almost no effect on actually motivating behavior change. So we really do need to understand human behavioral psychology and behavioral economics to understand how is it that people really make decisions in the marketplace? What is it that really influences them to change their behavior? How do you move them beyond habit, 
most of our purchases are based on habit. It is what we've done or what we saw our parents do or whatever. How do we dislodge that and help them understand that there really are changes you can make that will make your life better and that will also be better for the world around you. And so I think that that we are really early in not only providing the better information and allowing consumers to have the information they need um, in the aisles, in that 20 seconds that they have to make a decision in the aisles, which has been our first challenge. Get this on your iPhone and your Android and in the aisles or on, on your iPad or wherever it is you're making shopping decisions, but then also connect it to how we actually make decisions, which is habit, peer influence, status. We buy cars and clothes because of how people think we are, not because of some kind of rational optimization of the utility of the product versus the cost. So there's all these other things involved that we're really now pushing up against and trying to take the next leap forward where this really can empower people to live better lives and to make better decisions. So sustainable consumption is not an oxymoron. It it is part of the solution. It's not a delusion. That's right. And and we don't believe that you can buy your way out of our sustainability crisis. But we do feel like we do need to be more informed about the impacts of our decisions, that we are spending billions of dollars on things that cause carbon emissions and wasted water and wasted emissions of toxins and sweatshops, and that most Americans have ethics and values that tell them they want to live a good life. They want to take care of their family. They want to do good. And so in the past, we basically have, I think, lived in the dark ages. We knew nothing when we walked into the store except brand and price. That's all we knew. So we're at the very starting points of knowing the things we need to know to align our spending with our values. But it's still early days. Aaron Kramer, is is, uh, is it possible to buy and consume our way out of this to a happier place, or are we just kind of deluding ourselves along this as we go toward the cliff? Well, better choices are, are clearly better, but new models, I think, can help quite a lot. Um, you know, a couple of examples. The, the average electric drill purchased in America is used for nine minutes over the course of its lifetime. <laughs> Now, but it looks good in the garage, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, now, if my wife were here, she'd say that's nine minutes more than you've ever used a power tool. <laughs> but, um, but we don't need to buy those kinds of things. So where I live in Berkeley, there's a, a local tool library. That's great. I can go in and I can have my nine minutes of fun and bring it, bring it on back. Um, but the best example in a, in a business sense is Zipcar. Zipcar, which was just purchased, I think, by Avis. Um, so the, the notion of collaborative consumption, the sharing economy... Um, is taking hold. And to Dara's point, these things do start small, but we're starting to see, um, especially people you know, in their 20s on college campuses, they love this idea. So the notion um, that drove the American economy in the post-war years, where the, the archetype was a suburban uh, family, two, you know, two parents, three kids, two cars in the driveway, um, that model is fading away. And what's really exciting is these are creating new business opportunities. And you know, you saw the setup video had Bill Ford. He's, he's taking Ford in a direction to think about how uh, that company um, can look at mobility as a business option and just the sale of, of a car every three years to a suburban dweller. Uh, that may be a model that's gone for good. I think one, one, one point to add on to that is, that, I mean, I, I think most of this conversation has been about uh, consumers in America and ha- having lived overseas myself for many years. Uh, I think we d- you don't want to overlook the fact that the dynamics in, in emerging markets are very different than they are in the United States. And, um, you know, the, 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 why I totally agree with you that there's a lot of positive in, in, in where we are today with the emergence of the collaborative, you know, consumption, sharing economy, plus the, the rise in purchase of, of these products that people are demanding more information about. 
all very well and good, but you've got you know uh, uh, four fifths of the of the world that are you know consumers now coming online who uh, are thinking uh, in very different ways uh, in, in many cases. And so, you know, to go back to the original question, is, is you know, sustainable consumption a, a viable, um, uh, you know, approach to uh, moving forward? You know, we can't just look at it from a, a U.S. perspective. It has to be looked at from a, a global perspective. And I think that we're far from, uh, you know, having a solution to, to solve that issue. And you lived in China. Do you think that, that sort of in China that just the sheer numbers, the volume of consumers, the the, the, the growing middle class, that they live like we do, that it's going to be pretty messy? Well, I mean, I, I got into this whole uh, arena uh, 20 years ago because, uh, you know, the writing was, was pretty clearly on the wall in China that if they moved, uh, you know, on the same path that we had taken to get where we are uh, to a, a advanced industrialized economy, that, you know, that was going to lead to a vortex of consumption. I mean, that, that China would end up consuming itself and consume us with it, right? And so, uh, you know, I think that um, right now the mindset for the vast majority of China, and some new studies just came out that, that talked about the emergence of the affluent class in China and the, the purchasing power of that class, and that's just one-fifth of China that's, that's moved into that uh, uh, area of, of income, uh, you know, that that's going to have a major impact. Uh, and, you know, they're in a mindset right now where they want to acquire. And, and um, you know, I don't have a, a problem with that. I mean, you know, that's their, their uh, right to do that. Um, but that's the reality. I mean, their, 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 their whole mindset is I'm going to accumulate stuff. I'm going to get my toaster. I'm going to get my air conditioner. And so, you know, uh, the, the discussion that we're having is important one. But, you know, I think I don't want to o- overlook that. Let's talk about the role of government. We haven't talked about uh, government yet. The Federal Trade Commission recently uh, came up with some guidelines uh, about what companies can or can't do. Uh, is that a meaningful role here, the role of government, in terms of uh, preventing companies from overreaching or, or making uh, ex- exaggerated claims? Or is that something where they're just never going to be a real player? Darrower? Well, the Federal Trade Commission, after 18 or 19 years, finally issued this thing called the Green Guides on marketing claims related to environment. And it was very disappointing, I would say, in how limited it was. It didn't even cover the word sustainability. It didn't get close to life cycle assessment or green chemistry. It basically caught up with kind of 1980 conversations. And so... Talked about uh, compostable, recyclable... Yeah, so it got the most basic things on you can't say certain things about biodegradable or compostable or natural, but it, it really is not a leader in, in showing us where the market's going to go. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done through corporate leadership, through institutional purchasers, retailers, NGOs, the advocacy community that's going to be the lead on this. Um, the federal government obviously could be playing a, a really important role in moving this forward and has to play an important role in stopping the worst forms of greenwash. And so that's really where they've gotten up to. They're now starting to enforce blocking companies from making the most egregious false claims. And I think a lot of people would say that we don't want the government sort of leading this, that, they, that they're that they not going to be a leader, nor should they be. But uh, you're saying that their appropriate role is to sort of is to stop the most egregious transgressions. I think the government could have a much more proactive and productive role than that, but that's basically what they've caught up to. And we see also California has... Uh, enforcement actions around false marketing claims, false advertising claims. And we see that with the Federal Trade Commission around false claims related to green. Because in this boom of green products, there was it became the Wild West. And you'd see a packet of eggs at Whole Foods would have nine different certifications and claims on it, and no one could interpret them and what they meant. And so 
there needs to be someone who is regulating what can be said in this, you know, this is advertising. And occasionally that happens in the, in the courts. Uh, Windex was taken to court for a, uh, a logo that, that had something about green list ingredients. Well, green list ingredients was the court rule was actually kind of plausibly a consumer could uh, conclude that that was some kind of certification when really it wasn't. It was something that they just made up. Yeah, so. that was an internal rating that uh, um, C.S. Johnson, S.C. Johnson had created on their own and put on the packaging, not realizing that it would violate the... the uh, the, uh, so is there any cost to overreaching? I guess that's part of the question is, you know, is there any penalty or you just kind of get away with greenwashing and you might take, a, you know, or is it really sort of, the, is it Twitter? It's the bash tags that are the real enforcement mechanisms more than the courts, Aaron Kramer? Well, Windex should never be accused of a lack of transparency. That would be very yeah, bad for the brand. I think you have the answer. I do think that the government is ab- absolutely needs to take a vigilant role, but there are so many ways that companies can, can, can get caught up these days. We've seen it. We, we see it almost daily um, that I think the, the government really in some ways is the, is the enforcer of last result. And, um, you know, there's crowdsourcing. There's also crowd bashing or, or, and crowd truthing that, that takes place. And, and that's a pretty potent force. Have you ever uh, dismissed or not worked with a company because you thought that they were sort of overreaching or not genuine in their commitment to sustainability at business for, business for social responsibility? We have declined on several occasions to pursue projects when we felt that the project was about reputation and not about performance. I mean, as an organization, we take the point of view that there's no company that is perfect and there's no company that can't improve, but if the activities that we're asked to undertake or about reputation don't have integrity, we don't do it. William Brent, have you ever fired a client? Uh, we have resigned clients. Oh, that's a nice one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah no, uh, we have. Uh, it's, it's, I, you know, there are certain industries that as an agency we have determined not to work with, uh, such as tobacco, but, um, you know, in other cases it's a, uh, in a case-by-case basis oftentimes, uh, you know, similar to what uh, Aaron was talking about. We had a a company that was in uh, the resource business, and uh, there was a, a group within uh, the firm who felt that they were behaving badly and uh, were not a company that we wanted to work with. We lobbied our leadership to um, uh, resign that, that client, uh, had long and in-depth conversations about it, uh, all the ins and outs of, of doing that and why we should, and eventually we decided uh, to, to move on. Um, so that does happen. William Brent is Executive Vice President of Energy, Clean Tech, and Sustainability at Weber Shandwick. We're also talking today with, uh, about green marketing at Climate One with Aaron Kramer, President and CEO of Business for Social Responsibility, and Dara O'Rourke, co-founder of The Good Guide and Associate Professor at UC Berkeley. We're going to take a pause right now and put a microphone up here and invite your participation to join us with one one-part question or comment. Uh, and if you need some help with that, we're here for you. And... and uh, if you're on this side, we invite you to please go around through those back doors and the line forms with our producer, Jane Ann, right there. And uh, this is often the best part of uh, the program, so I encourage you to come up and join us uh, for that part. Meanwhile, I'm going to ask, uh, 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 we were talking before about the Prius and the halo effect. Some people think that there's a phenomenon where people will do one big thing like buy a Prius, and that gives them a license to... Uh, do other things in their life that are not so carbon friendly. It's like if you eat your vegetables, you can have a big dessert afterwards, mm-hmm. and somehow it washes out. You're okay, Darwin. Yeah. yeah. So there actually are a couple of interesting academic studies that show this kind of negative effect of doing something green. 
Um, unfortunately, if you dig into them, they're almost all done by economists on economics majors at universities where they study other economists. And economists are notoriously greedy and self-interested and, and really <laughs> bad subjects. Uh, so what we have found is, is actually the opposite, is that even small mundane consumption choices that change your perception about a product or a life decision can be a kind of entry point into a broader discussion. That most of the, the consumers we see come in focused on personal health and wellness, per, avoiding things that hurt themselves, their family. But that there is, once you realize the baby shampoo might have toxic chemicals in it, you start thinking about the cleaning supplies in your house and the food you're feeding your baby and the broader environmental health things that could be affecting your family. And I think that there's a potential of an on-ramp through consumption rather than a dead end through consumption. But it, it has to, you have to think about how you move people and move them from individual actions to collective action and move them from thinking they can buy their way out to thinking we're going to need regulation. We're going to need broad changes in our economy to really get at some of these problems. Excellent. Uh, let's have our audience question. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Yes, this is a great, this is a great panel. Um, I get irked when I open up the magazine and see full page ads from Chevron about, um, some very tangential aspect. And I'm, I'm just wondering, um, what impact these ads have, whether, um, they, the company views it as, as something that's really going to have an effect on how they're perceived. Thanks. Okay. So, you know, one thing that I've seen just on the bash tag is that Chevron had this whole marketing campaign called Chevron Does. Like, does Chevron care about communities? Blah, blah, blah. Chevron does. And the activist community took that and ran it as a whole series of ads about, does Chevron really destroy the Amazon? Yes, Chevron does. And they took their exact iconography of their ads and turned it into a viral campaign bashing Chevron. So I know at least one group has used their exact language against them. But I don't know. I mean, they obviously spend millions of dollars doing it, so they must get something out of it. William? Well, you know, they are constantly looking, I assume, I don't work for them, uh, looking for ways to try and, um, you know, be seen as contributing to society and, and the benefits of, of society. Um, you know, they, they do, to their credit, have a, a energy services business that is focused on developing energy efficiency projects and wind power developments, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not as if they are only engaged in the fossil fuel industry. Um, you know, I think that uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, an industry that, you know, simply is bound by, by who they are. Um, and there's very little opportunity for them at this point um, to to really um, change the perception of, of the fossil fuel industry or themselves. Uh, you know, I just don't think it's going to happen. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, we've been talking a lot about companies that may have kind of a select product line that fits within the sustainability context or, you know, maybe companies that are kind of trying to remake um, themselves uh, through branding into kind of a, a sustainability, have a sustainability cachet. What about companies that are more, you know, focused on having sustainability at the core of their business? Um, I'm curious, you kind of mentioned something interesting about Unilever, which maybe fits into the, the former category about, you know, talking about how they, they might advertise about taking shorter showers, and that could be a really um, have a big impact um, on the sustainability of the product. Have you seen any really interesting, innovative um, branding communications out there for maybe some of the companies that are really driven by core sustainability principles? We'd like to tackle that one. 
Aaron Kramer? Uh, let me start with the first part of your question, which I think is interesting, and it makes me think of Marks & Spencer, which is a big UK-based UK retailer. And they talk about this as actions below the line and above the line. And I think that's really simple and really smart because there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that they do below the line, the production process, the logistics process, that no consumer ever sees, no consumer ever cares about, but actually has a huge impact on on things. And then there's above the line. You know, what, what is your, your purchasing decision, how do you use the product, and so on. So I think that's a really smart way to think about it. And every company can do things below the line, including uh, B2B companies. And that's where there's, there's a lot of progress uh, to be made, separate and apart from the complexities of consumer behavior and, and, and marketing and so on. So the best companies think about uh, both of those things. And, and if they do both of those things well, then they're really on to something. And below the line, a lot of times they're thinking about their employees. They want their employees to, to like where they work, to think they're a good corporate citizen, they're working for a good company, right? That's just some employee pressure and, and uh, serving that, that constituency. Well, one other, just point on, uh, uh, you know, companies or brands that are, are doing an interesting job with sustainability. Um, you know, Tesla is an interesting company in that, um, you know, they're making electric cars uh, here in, in the Bay Area. But Elon Musk, the, the head of the company who started it, I mean, you know, I think he, the way he frames it is, is, is um, you know, I'm not in the business of making a, a great uh, electric vehicle. I'm in the business of making a great vehicle that happens to take advantage of uh, uh, electric uh, and battery technology. Um, and I think that uh, that's sort of a, a trend, as I see it, uh, for uh, the, the brands that are communicating well. They're sort of stepping away from the green first uh and really, um, you know, trying to be the best they can be, you know, across the board. It's not about just being a green company or a sustainable company. It's actually coming at it from a different angle and saying, hey, we want to be the best, period, and we'll use the technologies and the, and the, the ways to get, get there. Um, and so it's, it's almost not a question of who's doing it, uh, the sustainability marketing best. It's a, who's doing the, the product and, the, and the, the development of the business best. And I would just add, I think some of the most interesting things that, that I see um, are coming from startups, little tiny companies that are basically born with this in their DNA. That I think the major innovations in chemistry are not going to come from Dow and DuPont. They're going to come from little green chemistry startups. And probably the major, major innovations in energy, in transport, are going to come from startups that are going to have it built in from the beginning and not try to be transitioning billion-dollar business units to something that really is tough. So there's a lot of, I think, potential in these little companies coming up. And just one footnote, we mentioned uh, Zipcar and sharing. Uh, later this month, I think it's in March, we're going to have Scott Griffith, the CEO of Zipcar, will be here. And Andy Rubin, who's co-founder of Ural, which is a sharing, a sharing economy company. So we'll have a whole event on the sharing economy here in a couple of months. Let's have our next audience question. Uh, so speaking of the promise of these small companies, kind of innovating and embedding sustainability into who they are, uh, there's been a lot of talk about the legal corporate structure mm. uh, and how important that is in this conversation. Do you think that one day most, if not all, companies should be B Corps or benefit corporations? And explain what a B Corp is, whoever's going to tackle that. Who'd like to take that on? Uh, uh, it's a great question. B Corporations are – there's a new way that a company can be chartered in several states um, so that they have a, an explicit social purpose – built into their bylaws, essentially, that it's not only about maximizing shareholder value as that concept is understood traditionally. This is a hugely important question. I don't think that all companies or even most companies will take on a new form. 
What I do think will happen, although I think it could take 10 years or more, is that com- public companies who are regulated by the SEC are going to be required to provide more information and more rigorously tested information about the social and environmental performance, their governance, and the things that have traditionally been considered external uh, to financial performance. That day is, is going to come, and I think it's going to come because we recognize the business risk, we recognize the risks to society, and we live in a much more transparent world. So I, I personally, I, I'm a big fan of B Corps and, and other models. I'd rather see the SEC change because I think you'll get much bigger pickup more quickly with big companies if you see that change happen. And not many companies have registered as B Corps yet so far. One of the non-structural things, so if it's not structural change, I mean, I think the other uh, interesting thing that I've seen recently is is around, you know, the the, the placing value on externalities by by corporations. So you got Patagonia starting to value ecosystem services. um, And I think that it it might, it's not going to necessarily change the structure of the the corporation itself, but it's going to change the way that corporations look at use of natural resource and sourcing supplies for the products that they make, having understood that without those, their business doesn't exist. One last thing. Good Guy was founded as a B corporation, and it actually, I think, has been incredibly beneficial in getting that clear in the Articles of Incorporation, the legal structure that the board and officers are working in the interest not just of shareholders, but also stakeholders, the environment, workers, communities. It's a very powerful simple changes that can allow a company to have a much longer view and do some really interesting things. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, Absolutely wonderful discussion. Um, My question here is on the consumer behavior side. The whole notion of uh, payback or giving back. Um, Now, the old charity model has been so that uh, these brands have actually pivoted on the strings of the emotions of the consumers. And, you know, companies are very much into, you know, if you buy a certain amount, the percentage goes to this charity and that. What's going to take to shift the mindset of these consumers whereby they're going to start demanding the new charity model, whereas the, the brand says, you know, when you buy, we're actually going to provide back on the supply chain side versus to a different charity that may also be fun, mm-hmm. but more towards the sustainability side. When, when is that tipping point going to happen? I'd like to tackle that one. Well, well, uh, just as one example, I think Tom Shoes, Warby Parker, some of these just buy one, give one models have been phenomenally successful, right? These startups that are basically just... It resonates so much with consumers. My daughter was so excited that a pair of shoes will lead to another pair of shoes, and it's the company's core business is being impacted. It's exactly like you said. It's not, oh, they're going to donate to something over here. It's they're going to try to change their impact on where they control it. It's a little bit off, but the I think there's some really interesting innovation going on in that space. It's still only a few companies doing kind of different things, but... Um, you know, corporate philanthropy, I think, really has a lot that can be done to make it more accountable, more focused, uh, more representative of what the real impacts are. And a lot of corporate philanthropy is really corporate marketing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. Uh, next audience question. Welcome, sir. Yes. I was um, surprised with what you said about Walmart, the kind of watershed event that happened apparently 2007 uh, with respect to their kind of understanding or attempt to understand life cycle analysis. I was on a webinar a couple of years ago, 
And someone was commenting on the point system that they use for sustainable product and life cycle. And the guy said, you mean if Huggies, disposable diapers, turn out to have a terrible score, you'll no longer sell them in your stores? And you could have heard a pin drop. The guy completely talked around this. So what, I'm sure there's more to the story than that, but that was a, apparent, that was just a couple of years ago, and it seemed to me to be an extremely awkward moment. We could do a whole program on Walmart, and there have been books written about Walmart and their initiatives. In fact, their senior vice president of sustainability will be here later this year. But right now, let's talk about the Huggies and whether Walmart gets too much credit, I guess. Is that part of Aaron Kramer? Walmart, you know, did a good thing in helping to launch the sustainability consortium, which is going to provide a scientific basis for judging products. I think that's a contribution. Is it a panacea for everything? Absolutely not. I also think that... Um, while Walmart's done a lot of things to make its model more efficient, it, it is still predicated on selling large volumes of things. And as a, a fellow I know, Mark Gunther, who writes well on this, says the problem with the American economy is we have a lot of people buying stuff they don't need with money they don't have. And, um, and you know, you might add, you know, with negative impacts on the environment. So I think a lot of questions still to be resolved. The initial index that Walmart aimed to, to put in place you can critique it in terms of the degree of implementation. I think there are also questions about, uh, again, how you ensure that there is enough complexity to lead to good, uh, good, good science, good rigor, um, and also make it simple enough and, and of course, uptake in, in the marketplace. So lots of questions remain to be resolved. And Walmart's having a huge impact on their supply chain, factories around the world, and there it's, it's largely driven by cost savings, but they're having a huge impact a ripple effect throughout the manufacturing industry because of the factories that they that they deal with. We could, uh, and just to your, really quickly to your specific question, their buyers are not making decisions on what goes on the shelf based on the sustainability index yet. They claim that at some point in the future yeah. they will, but they are not taking bad products off the shelves, putting good products on yet. Although I, I think th- that some products with good scores are getting much better placement on the shelf. So it's, it's not yet the all-or-nothing um, test, it's working its way into the system with a long ways to go. There was one uh, survey by a group called TerraChoice that actually found that there was less greenwashing in products in big box retailers than boutique retailers. Mm. So I thought that was kind of surprising. Let's have our next audience question, please. Hi. Firstly, thank you for the insights. It's really nice. My question here is, what is what are your comments on the price points for the organic products or uh, for example, it's not possible or it's it's not feasible for everybody to buy a dollar a, a tomato. Uh, it's just not. So don't you see it as a cash-22 situation where the prices are not attracting the volumes that are required to attain the critical mass? So when does that change? It's a little bit of a chicken and the egg, right? You, you can't bring down the price unless you achieve scale. How do you achieve scale if you can't bring down the price? Um, I think that... Uh, you know that's a that's a that's a great question, um, and I think that um, you know it's going to take time. I mean, I think we're at the beginning, right? Yeah, I think, and this goes back to something you said a little bit earlier, William. I think if you include the externalities in our food production system, and you fairly priced our goods and services, ultimately what you want to get to is the good products actually are price competitive or cheaper. That they are being priced fairly and. Right now, there are these differentials that you have to pay more to get the organic thing, the whatever. Um, but I think long term, we've got to figure out how you actually price the market so that the, the real costs to our health, to the environment, are included in the price of the product. Then those products will look better. 
Dara Rourke is co-founder of The Good Guide and a professor at UC Berkeley. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi. I um, wanted to add to what you said, um, that truism about not only are Americans buying stuff we don't need with money we don't have, it's not making us happier, according to the happiness index. Um, my question is about green fatigue. Uh, I'm someone who's been trying to get the first green talk show on mainstream radio or television. For 15 years, I really think 2013 is going to be our breakthrough year after <laughs> 2012 being the year of extreme weather events. Um, among the crazy reasons or excuses that I've gotten for why we can't have one green talk show in America, environmentally focused on climate change, oceans, forests, transportation, food, you name it. It's not just one topic, right? Um, is Well, there's green fatigue. Aren't people tired of hearing about environmental issues? And I've been hearing that for 15 years from when I started in 1996. That blows my mind because I say, talk about one designated, dedicated show. What about how many programs and whole networks are devoted to sports and business and celebrities and all that stuff? What is behind that? Why is there this green bias that makes people, and I'm talking about everyone from programmers to friends, uh, a whole hour on the environment? I don't know, Betsy. (laughs) Well, there's some news today on this, William Brent, about New York Times. Yeah, the New York Times just announced today that they're going to shut down their environmental uh, news desk, um, which was a, a shock uh, coming from the New York Times. I would have thought that they would continue to, um, you know, focus on that. It's not that they're doing away with environmental coverage, but they're going to get rid of their their desk. Um, you know, green fatigue, it's uh, it's it's there for sure. Um, you see it in the media? Absolutely. The media that we, we talk to on a day-to-day basis, their editors, the the beat reporters, there are far fewer beat reporters. Uh, I think there was an initial high after, you know, Inconvenient Truth and all the focus that uh, was, was, was brought around that. Uh, and very quickly, people uh, in, the, in the media business decided, A, um, okay, we've heard the story enough. Uh, it's really not new anymore. Uh, and B, uh, they under, oversold and under-delivered. Um, there are all of the, uh, many of the startups that you alluded to earlier, um, you know, many of them have failed or promised things that they cannot deliver on uh, at a price point that is economical and, and viable in the marketplace. And so um, I think there's a, a lot of skepticism and, and for good cause in many cases uh, about the legitimacy and the viability of, 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 of green marketing, green products. That's my point of view. Yeah, I don't know anything about television, but it seems to me if, if there's room enough for cupcake wars and all these other shows, there should be, you could get one hour on environment. I, I think, as Aaron said earlier, just kind of framing around the environment and green is, is problematic right now. And so we're more and more framing around personal health and wellness. And, and health is something that almost everyone cares about their health in some degree. And so figuring out how you connect it to things that resonate and it, it is really hard talking about climate change to a mainstream audience. We're talking about biodiversity loss. We're talking about these very complex global issues. So figuring out a way to tell these stories, to communicate in a way that resonates, is a huge challenge. And it's something that I think really the academic community, the science community, the NGO community has not done a great job of. So figuring out a way to make it resonate the way Cupcake Wars does is, is going to be key. And I would so say the companies haven't done a very good job either, no, just right. based on the, the amount of product that they're selling. I'll go out on a limb. I think it can be done better than Cupcake Wars. Yeah. I, I, I really do. Um, I, I, look, I, I, we have... There's a there's a short attention span theater problem, right? Yeah. And um, we had massive, you know, hour by hour coverage of the spill in the Gulf of Mexico, hour by hour coverage of Fukushima. There was the coal mining accident in West Virginia. None of those things had remotely the impact 
on our health and our environment than our use of coal. Not close. How much attention does that get? Well, you can't show a child's lungs being damaged by coal the way you can show an oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico. So we, we have a, a culture that responds to these images, and they're very vivid. I understand that. But there's a lot of underlying stuff that's really important that is very hard to depict, at least through visual images. So we've got to find new ways. We were talking before the session, new ways of storytelling. Um, I, I put the question to Paulo Coelho once, the Brazilian novelist, how would you tell the story about climate change? I think we have to think about those kinds of things. You didn't have a particularly good answer, by the way. But I think cupcakes. I, I think it's got to be about the cupcakes. Well, <laughs> one, uh, one good TV show we're going to wrap up here is uh, Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution. Yeah. did go in and very visually. It was real people about their health, yeah. and it was quite dramatic. Uh, let's wrap up by asking you personally about how you've uh, changed your consumption patterns and what you think your biggest piece remaining is of your own personal carbon footprint. Aaron, we'll come down this way. Aaron Kramer? Um, I, I would like my house to be more energy efficient. That's the, the goal I should achieve. Um, I, I read a book a couple of years ago by a woman named Sarah Murray who talked about how food travels, and she basically largely debunked the notion of food miles by saying the impact on your food purchases come more from how you get to and from the store than how the food got to the store. And so I take BART, I get off BART, I buy my food daily, I don't add any more miles my own journey to get food that's hopefully making some impact. Dara Rourke? Yeah, so the big ticket items for personal consumption on your big environmental impact are your housing, your transportation, and your food. Those are the big three. And so really, if people can think about what they can do in those, so living closer to where you work, commuting on mass transit, not driving a single occupancy vehicle, and eating less meat. That, if, if all of us could just have one day less of meat per week, that would have a huge benefit on carbon emissions and overall climate emissions. And what's, thing, what's one thing you've given up that, that you miss? When, when... You know, this is a thing where I think is really kind of a myth of, of, of the mainstream around environmentalism and this health is that, that you're going to be immiserating yourself and your life will be worse. I think Living that, like a European, yes. Right, and I think <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, Aaron and I both live in the East Bay and, and we can walk to our stores and there are farmer's markets and you can consume less but live better and live healthier. And so, you know, our family has one car, not two. So that would be a kind of giving up to the American lifestyle, but it's mm-hmm. actually better for us. And are we're happier for it to not be in traffic jams. So That's I really think it's less expensive. It's better in every way. And so I really think there's we need to be thinking about changing quality of life and changing how we live and how we structure our economy so that we can live close to where we work and we can shop close to where we live and eat locally and these things really can be better and not worse. We'll see if your teenager agrees when they're driving. Yeah, right, but right, yeah. Right. Um, William Brent? Cucumbers. Uh, no, gardening. I, I, I want to grow more food. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it's a, a great opportunity to, you know, be back in touch with the ground, which not a lot of people touch these days. Uh, and it's it's great to walk out your back door. I have you know a small garden, but I'd like to you know expand it. It's great to walk out your back door and pick a piece of uh, a tomato off the vine and eat it, and it's really really good. Um, and it doesn't cost you anything. We tried that for a year or two, and the, the novelty kind of wore wore off. But uh, <laughs> but we do have electric uh, car and, and solar panels. The thing I miss are the, uh, the wood in the fireplace. We gave that up. Uh, That's one thing I missed. I had to do it. 
Uh, thank you for coming to here to, today to Climate One. We've been talking about sustainability with William Brent from Weber Shandrick, Aaron Kramer, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility, and Dara O'Rourke, co-founder of The Good Guide and professor at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming today.